evening. My name is Ruth. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is my great pleasure to be speaking this morning in the second week in our series, Surprised by Love. Through this six-week series, we are exploring the first half of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll get to the second half um, early next year. So Mark is a great gospel, right? It's almost certainly uh, the oldest of the gospels, uh, the first one to be written. It's easily the shortest. It's less than 700 verses uh, compared to um, almost 1,200 verses in Luke. Uh, it has just 16 chapters, and some of them are very short. Um, Matthew's gospel, uh, in comparison, has got 28 chapters, uh, although some people just say Matthew goes on a bit. Um, but um, that was the joke. <laughs> and um, Mark is written in a, a very simple way, as uh, was mentioned last week. The Greek actually is not very good. Uh, there are a number of grammatical mistakes, for example, um, but it's an easy read. Uh, the style is very colloquial and there are uh, really no literary flourishes. Um, it's a very immediate style. And in fact, that phrase and immediately or you know, sometimes it's and straight away or at once, um, it's it's kaiuthios in, in the Greek, and it's used 39 times in these uh, 16 chapters. And most of those are in the first half of the book, a little over half of the book. Once Jesus is arrested, things really slow down. But this first part of Mark is very fast-paced. Um, there's kind of this sense of urgency through it. There are no birth stories in Mark, as, as we know. Mark's not got time for that. In fact, within the first 20 verses of chapter 1, Jesus is introduced, he's baptized, he's declared the son of God twice, um, he's tempted in the wilderness, he calls his first disciples, and he sets out on his preaching mission, all in 20 verses. In the first 20 verses of Luke, by way of comparison, Jesus is not even mentioned. Uh, and in the first 17 verses of Matthew, we just have the genealogy, this long list of names of the ancestors of Jesus. So our section today, which is basically more or less um, the first three chapters, is jammed full of stories, and we can't possibly do justice to them all. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on chapter one, um, but we're going to look at how the themes in chapter one are expounded uh, and picked up in chapters two and three, um, and then obviously what that might mean for us. So in chapter one, Mark very quickly sets the scene. Uh, as we saw last week, uh, Mark's gospel is really interested in laying out the evidence for who Jesus is. Uh, different views of um, Jesus's identity are described in this gospel. And ultimately, the reader is kind of left to think for themselves. Who do they say uh, Jesus is and, and what are they going to do about that? But Mark gives his own opinion um, in the very first uh, verse of chapter one. This is the only time he really does that uh, kind of overtly. We read in Mark one, uh, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. So that's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the son of God on the next slide. Uh, but what does that mean? And that's kind of the point of the rest of the book. Mark is going to show us what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, the son of God. So in the next few verses, John the Baptist appears and he gives his opinion of Jesus. Uh, he says this, after me comes one more powerful than I, or literally stronger than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is stronger than John. Uh, John, the great messenger of God, who Isaiah prophesied about, and Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
And then we get um, to the first of what some people call the three pillars of Mark, because although Mark is pretty uh, basic in it, it's Greek. Um, the structure of the gospel is pretty clear. This is, you know, it's not haphazard. This is someone writing very thoughtfully and very deliberately uh, to communicate certain things about Jesus's identity as Messiah and Son of God. So there are three, um, the writing's a little small, so uh, you might not be able to read it all, but there are three main places where we see divine revelation about who Jesus is. This is not just people's opinions uh, of who Jesus is. These are moments when um, we actually see Jesus's identity revealed. So in each of these, we see, you know, kind of from a human perspective, the, the separation between heaven and earth temporarily removed, so to speak. So heaven breaks through. Um, in the baptism story, we, we read that the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. In the transfiguration, the second of these pillars, we get uh, Moses and Elijah uh, people who lived centuries before, they're appearing and talking to Jesus. And then a cloud descends and again, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. And then at the crucifixion, noticeably, there is no voice from heaven. Rather, there is this uh, ominous sense of silence. Um, but there's divine action ripping the temple veil, the veil that uh, represented the separation between uh, the presence of God and humanity. And a pagan soldier at the top, at the, at the bottom of the cross says, truly, this was the son of God. So Mark here seems to be making the point that, to, um, that despite the messianic secret that we were talking about last week, that this idea that Jesus, um, to some extent, keeps his identity hidden, um, at this point, at the point of the crucifixion, it's there for everyone to see. Even a Roman soldier involved in the execution can see who Jesus really is. There's no excuse anymore. And in each of these stories, um, we get reference to Elijah. Elijah was prophesied to herald the coming of the Messiah. So we have the Son of God and the Messiah themes running through each of these three. This series, actually, the six-week series, is, is going to stop just before the transfiguration. So we'll see those other two pillars um, in the second half of Mark. Um, but today we have, in chapter one, the first divine attestation to Jesus's identity as the beloved Son of God. And immediately after that very brief account of Jesus's baptism, which we looked at last week, um, we read, at once, Caiuthios again, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness, Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. And that's it. That's all we have on Jesus's 40 days of being tempted in the wilderness. We've got no idea what those uh, temptations were. Um, more importantly, just, just reading this one account, we've got no idea how Jesus handled that, you know, what happened. Um, Mark is really not telling the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. He's setting the scene for the rest of the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. He's stronger than John. He's one who baptizes with the spirit. He's one who's driven by the spirit and su supported by angels. And he is immediately put into conflict with Satan, the accuser, the adversary. So we've got these uh, two opposing sides established. And then we read, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So John is now removed from the picture and Jesus takes center stage, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. And he chooses his first disciples, not religious people, not influential people, or even educated people. There's an ordinary fisherman. 
And then he goes to the synagogue, which in first century Palestine would be a logical place to launch a, a new a kind of teaching. Synagogues were places of prayer and teaching. The worship, the sacrifices, that all happened in the temple. And there was only one temple that was in Jerusalem. But at the local level, by law, wherever there were 10 or more Jewish families, there should be a synagogue. And we don't think there actually were in everywhere, but certainly there were a lot of these synagogues in villages and towns. And at the synagogue, there were a number of different officials, uh, that, that, including a, a ruler of the synagogue. That was uh, the guy who would get out the uh, scrolls of scripture and he would handle the general administration of, of the synagogue. But there was no designated teacher. The ruler of the synagogue could call on any competent male uh, to read and expound the scriptures that were signed for that day. So the local synagogue was obviously uh, a lot place for Jesus to start his teaching and, and that's what he does and as we read last week um, in Mark 122 the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who has authority not as the teachers of the law the teachers of the law of course were uh, people who would take the moral law in the Jewish scriptures and interpret its implications for everyday life uh, like lawyers today they would not just give their own opinion they would cite uh, precedents legal precedents and these rules could get very complicated, very technical and specific and, and onerous. But according to Mark, Jesus wasn't like that. He spoke with personal authority. And then as typical for Mark, the story quickly continues. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So in this brief vignette, we see a number of themes that are key to Mark. As Matthew mentioned last week, the demons or the impure spirits, they know who Jesus is. He is the Holy One of God. And Jesus tells them to be quiet, that uh, messianic secret again. Jesus is hiding his, his identities to some extent in these early chapters of the gospel. But although Jesus doesn't want people or, or, or people's demons declaring him to be the Messiah or the Holy One of God at this point in the story, the exorcism itself speaks to Jesus's authority and therefore to his identity. As we already know from the temptation story, Jesus is embarking on a conflict against the forces of evil. And in fact, this is the first of four exorcisms that are, are described in Mark. He has a 13 healing stories and four of them involve malevolent spirits. And there are several other references too to a, a, a general, in a general sense of Jesus, healing the sick and casting out demons. Mark sees exorcisms as important to answering the question, who is Jesus? He, he dedicates a significant portion of his 700 verses to this topic actually, as you can see in this graph. But no, he only talks about them in the first half of the gospel when he's showing that Jesus has authority. Uh, Jesus teaches with authority and he acts with authority. Uh, spirits don't just obey Jesus when he commands them, but, but even being in his presence, they're afraid of him whenever they see him. He's powerful, he's strong, even stronger than John. 
But in the second half of the gospel, Mark will focus on the humility of Jesus, the inevitability of suffering, uh, not being the greatest. Um, the focus will be on teaching rather than miracles, all culminating in Jesus's death. Now, there are hints of that uh, coming already in the first half. But at this early stage, Mark's focus is really on showing that Jesus is a powerful adversary to the forces of evil. Now, exorcisms probably seem pretty weird to us, right? I hope so, actually, because if you're like, no, I guess it's two or three a week, you know, that, that would be interesting. Right? And we don't tend to think in terms of demons or impure spirits. But at the time of Jesus, of course, people did. Um, this seems to have largely been a result of the influence of Persian culture, uh, which was very dualistic. You know, the world was full of good and evil, good spirits, evil spirits. They were battling it out. And the first century uh, Judaism absorbed uh, some of those beliefs. Uh, we see that very clearly in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Although ancient Jewish scriptures actually say very little about um, evil spirits and demons, and basically they just say, you know, have nothing to do with all that. Uh, rabbis had taken some verses from those Jewish scriptures and had applied a new interpretation. So, for example, in Psalm um, 91, we read, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, um, but it will not come near you. So some rabbis had taken this verse and said, oh, well, the psalmist here is talking about demons. There are 1,000 on one side and 10,000 on the other. Now, that's really not clear from the psalm at all. Um, but Persian influence is impacting the interpretation. So demons and spirits were believed to be everywhere, and um, they were very oppressive. Uh, in this pre-scientific world, uh, they were credited with causing physical and mental illness. Um, they were the reason why somebody was uh, limited in some way, you know, and able to speak or hear or whatever. They were a constant threat. And rabbis and teachers of the law had um, either developed or reported, we don't really know which, some pretty complex ways of dealing with them. Um, there were incantations, there were elaborate rites uh, with hair and um, knots and uh, use of water and music and, and all different kinds of things. Um, but just as Jesus went straight to the point with his teaching, speaking with personal authority, we see him doing the same thing with exorcisms. There are no special words. There are no rituals. Jesus simply issues a command to leave and the spirit obeys. Just two chapters later, we see that uh, Jesus has gained a reputation as someone who can drive out demons. Uh, we read this. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So here, first, Jesus points out the ridiculousness of their reasoning. You know, if one demon's driving out another, they'll soon be defeated. Uh, Jesus uses the analogy of a strong man. To overcome a strong man, you need to be even stronger, which, of course, is exactly what Mark has already told us Jesus is. The word for strong is only used twice in Mark uh, to describe the strong man and to say, uh, John the Baptist saying that Jesus is stronger. Mark is telling us this is not 
an evenly uh, pitched battle between good and evil. Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, Holy One of God, will win. He will drive out evil spirits and he'll baptize, he'll saturate people with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Yes, amen. It is, it is good news. And then Jesus warns the religious leaders that if they reject this notion that there is someone stronger, someone holy, someone sent from God, if they say, no, there's just one demon driving out another, then they really are lost. Because if that's the case, there is no hope. We live in a society today that is very spiritual in some ways, but also incredibly hopeless. You know, people once believed that science and, uh, you know, rational inquiry, progress uh, would solve everything, uh, that we would leave religious superstition behind and we'd create a new utopia where everyone would have enough and we'd all um, work for the greater good. That hasn't happened, obviously. Although we're materially richer than ever, millions of people still live in poverty. Although we have um, much more access to education and knowledge, to food and, and, and medicine, and we have a standard of living that previous generations couldn't even imagine, we still live in a world that's ravaged by war. We still live in a country where fear and violence and division are pervasive. Science has not led to utopia. And there are forces at work in the world that seem to drive this, right? Consumerism, greed, lust for power, racism, sexism, homophobia, religious intolerance. Forces that are bigger than us, that you feel beyond our control. They seem to have a life of themselves. There are also forces within us that we feel we can't control sometimes. Uh, addictions, depression, uh, patterns of behavior that we just can't break despite our best intention. Demons and impure spirits have not gone away. Our understanding of them, how we think about them, for sure that's changed. But I think we still know what it feels like to be uh, feel oppressed and in need of something or someone stronger to bind up these forces, to drive them out, to give us peace and liberation and wholeness, to give us hope. Let's continue in chapter one. As we mentioned, Mark mentions 13 healing stories, four of which involve impure or evil spirits. The other nine are physical, although obviously there's, there's a lot of overlap between those. And Mark turns now to uh, this kind of a miracle. He writes, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. Again, we see the personal authority of Jesus and the simplicity with which he heals. The Talmud, the, the Jewish uh, religious law, provides a cure for someone with a burning fever. It says you should tie a piece of the person's hair on a bush and take a knife that's made only of iron, including the handle, and cut the bush for three consecutive days, reciting parts of the story of uh, God calling Moses from the burning bush. And then on the third day, the person will be healed. Jesus doesn't do that, right? He takes her by the hand and helps her up. Doesn't even say anything. Well, probably did say something, but nothing, you know, magical or nothing that made that happen, nothing that's recorded. And immediately she's healed. Mark goes on. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
So we're still in chapter one, and already Jesus is drawing great crowds. But note, they can't come to Jesus until the evening because it's the Sabbath. And Jewish law says that you can't work on the Sabbath. Well, what's work? Well, of course, the teachers of the law have clearly defined exactly what work uh, is, means. They put in place hundreds of laws about what you can and cannot do on that day. And one thing you couldn't do was pick up and carry a sick person across town. Another thing you couldn't do is heal people. You could intervene to stop a sickness or an injury from uh, getting worse. But unless a person's life was in danger, you couldn't actually heal them. So, for example, you were allowed to put a bandage uh, on a wound to stop the blood, but you weren't allowed to, uh, to put ointment on a wound. That had to wait until the evening when the Sabbath was over. And as for the healing of the man with uh, the impure spirit, Mark introduces this theme here and then uh, expounds on it in the following chapters. First, in chapter two, Jesus is criticized by the religious leaders for allowing his disciples to pluck ears of grain as, and eat them as they walk through the fields. Now, you were uh, allowed to do that on any other day, uh, but on the Sabbath, it was forbidden because you would technically be harvesting, winnowing, threshing and preparing a meal. So that's four uh, types of work that are all forbidden on the Sabbath. Jesus responds to the religious leaders with these words. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a gift to allow everyone to rest, no matter how poor, how lowly in status you are. Even people who were enslaved were entitled to have this one day a week to rest. It was meant to be a beautiful gift, a time of freedom, but it had been turned into something burdensome. The religious leaders had lost sight of the purpose of the Sabbath, and the minutiae of the laws that they created had made it really oppressive. And then immediately after that, we have the following story in chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is it lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So here we have a test case. All eyes are on Jesus. It's the Sabbath. Will he heal this man or not? And Jesus tells the man to stand up. He calls the situation out into the open. He's not going to heal him on the sly. He's going to take this issue head on. The man's life is clearly not in danger, right? I mean, Jesus could have arranged to, you know, come back and, and, and let's meet up tomorrow, but that's not the point. What is more important, religious rules and systems and power structures or this person's well-being? What is the Sabbath all about? And more than that, what is God all about? Oppression or liberation? Keeping the rules or becoming whole and healthy? Mark says Jesus was angry. He says that a few times in his gospel, actually, and that always makes me a little uh, uneasy. Uh, a little, I find it a bit scary. You know, you, you encounter people who are angry and you think, well, that's probably their issues. This is not Jesus' issues, right? This is our issues. Kind of like a double underline. Jesus is angry. He's angry because this is an inversion of everything that God is about. Being denied healing on the Sabbath is the antithesis of the good news of God. 
that Jesus came to proclaim. And then there's one final healing story in chapter one, and it's one, again, in which Jesus gets angry. We read, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, leprosy here uh, can refer to any number of skin diseases. It wasn't necessarily uh, what we would call, uh, you know, Hansen's disease today. But as I'm sure you know, lepers were excluded from society. Healthy people didn't go near them, much less touch them. In large part, of course, this was uh, because of uh, an understandable fear of contagion. But in addition, these people were seen as sinners. So there was a huge social stigma associated with uh, so-called leprosy. You might have noticed the man didn't ask Jesus to heal him. He asked him to make him clean. Skin disease was a sign of impurity and sin. There are a number of examples in the uh, Jewish scriptures of people being punished for sin by being inflicted by a skin disease. We think of uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, and King Uzziah, and the prophet Elisha's servant, and so on. There's a number of prominent examples. If you were a leper, you had earned it. And so it was fitting for you to be cast out of society and live in shame and isolation. The rest of society could feel more or less okay about that situation, that kind of exclusion. So it's not at all surprising that this man who breaks the law and endangers Jesus's own health by approaching him is not all sure that he's going to get a favorable reception. He says, if you are willing. And Mark says, Jesus was indignant. He was angry. Not angry that the man's approached him and asked for help. Uh, not angry that the man is inflicted with a skin disease. They're angry that people have constructed a social system founded on religious beliefs and practice that makes an inflicted man say, I'm unclean. I know you could cleanse me. I know you could restore me to health and to my family, my community, but you probably don't want to. This might be what I deserve. And of course, Jesus's response is not just to heal him, it's to touch him to throw out the religious regulations and the social barriers, to provide him with holistic healing, physical, emotional, relational. And we see this next, that same theme taken up in the next chapter with the story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. And we're not going to read that story um, this morning. It's quite a well-known one. Uh, you might remember there's a, a man who's paralyzed and four of his friends decide to take him to Jesus um, to be healed, but they couldn't get in because uh, the doorway is just jammed with people. And so they climb up onto the roof, pull out the sticks and clay from between the, the beams on the roof, and they lower the man through the hole. And Jesus says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And I think we tend to assume that's a bit of a letdown, right? <laughs> that's not what he's looking for. That's not what his friends want. He really wants healing, not forgiving. But perhaps that's just our worldview breaking through there. The man lived in a society that said, if you're paralyzed, God is punishing you. You must have done something wrong. You are a sinner. You should live in shame. You should be excluded. You should be forced to live on the margins of society. Jesus has a way of seeing into people's hearts, of identifying their deepest longings. And perhaps what this man needed most of all, what longed for most of all, was to know that God is not angry with you. You're not being punished. You don't need to live in shame. Jesus upended the religious teaching that you get what you deserve. On the contrary, says Jesus, you can be totally forgiven and yet still paralyzed. You can be loved and precious and full of faith and yet still suffer, still face obstacles, still no sickness, 
Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. He announced God's forgiveness. Now that happened all the time in the temple, but only after somebody did something, after they made the right sacrifices and offered the right prayers. And then, and only then, would a priest announce uh, forgiveness. But this man's not in the temple. He's not offered sacrifices. He's not actually done anything at all. And the teachers of the law, they're again present, checking on Jesus, making sure that he's following the religious rules. And they are furious. Who does Jesus think he is? He can't just go around and declaring forgiveness like that. Only God can forgive. And God has laid out a religious system that they maintain and they control. And Jesus can't just bypass that whole system. But Jesus says he's doing something new and a whole new way of thinking. And Mark expounds on that later in in chapter two. Jesus describes what he's doing and, and what he's teaching as being like new cloth that can't be used to patch up an old coat or new wine that can't be contained in old wineskins. The old way of thinking, it's not big enough. It's not elastic enough. It's not generous enough to stretch and make room for, for the things that Jesus is declaring. And this is the good news. God is not angry. Our sins are forgiven. There are no debts to be paid. That although we live in a broken and hurting world where evil forces sometimes seem out of control, Jesus is stronger. And Jesus' heart is always for healing and wholeness. That's not contingent on us doing anything at all. It's grace. It's love. It's freely given. Mark chapter 1 ends with Jesus sternly warning the man who had been healed of the skin disease not to tell anyone. That messianic secret again. Uh, But we read in verse 45, Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So here at least is one reason that Jesus is telling people uh, to stay quiet. Things are getting out of control. Uh, The crowds, they're gathering, they're eager for Jesus to cure them. But if this leper is any indication, they're not really listening. They're certainly not willing to do what Jesus says. They, They just want a wonder work. Now is the time for them to be quiet so that Jesus can be heard. But as we saw with those uh, three pillars, when Jesus is crucified, when he he makes the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of love, then his identity will be out in the open. Even a Roman guard will see Jesus for who he is. And the book will end with a man in a white robe sitting by Jesus's empty tomb, telling the women who come to prepare the body to go and tell the news that Jesus is alive. At the same time, we see opposition mounting. The religious leaders are increasingly recognizing that Jesus is dangerous. He's subversive. He's not bringing religion as usual. He's bypassing the elite systems of religious power centered on the temple. He's breaking down barriers that they so carefully maintain. He's welcoming disciples who are poor and uneducated. He's eating with tax collectors and other sinners. He's declaring God's love and acceptance to people who have done absolutely nothing to deserve it. He's bringing healing, holistic healing. He's restoring people to physical and mental and emotional health. And he's opening the way for relationships to be restored. He's proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that is just too much for the religious authorities. Early in chapter three, we read, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus already. The story has barely started. We've only had two chapters. We're less than a tenth of the way into these 700 verses. 
and they already want him dead. Such is the extent of the threat they see in Jesus' message, the threat of undeserved, unconditional, all-inclusive love and forgiveness. So what are we to make of all this? Well, obviously, there's so much in each of these stories. We could take it, you know, in, in so many different directions. But there are just a few things that I want to uh, pull out today. First of all, this is all about grace. It's not about performing, uh, following rules so we can feel good about ourselves or feel better than others. It's not about trying to please or placate a God who's angry or, or disappointed in us. It's about recognizing that we are already forgiven. We are loved and cherished and accepted. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to make God love us more. Second, the good news that Jesus brought is about life and wholeness and healing at every level, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational. God yearns to bring us wholeness. We don't need to ask if you are willing. God is willing. God longs for our wholeness. We don't need to persuade God to heal us and make us whole. But thirdly, healing is mysterious, right? I think we need to be honest about that. Why some people are physically and mentally healed, whether that's what we might class as miraculously or through medicine, and why others are not, that is a mystery, a deep mystery. But because it's all about grace, we know it's not because this person had more faith than that person. It's not a matter of having faith to name it and claim it or uh, storm the gates of heaven or any of those other phrases that talk about our strength and our ability. Rather, faith is about being faithful to the God who is with us, at work in us, whatever happens. It's about trusting that God is helping us to become the best person we can be at every stage of our living and of our dying. But I do believe, fourthly, that if we are truly open to God, some kind of healing takes place. It might not be in the form or to the extent that we'd like, but God meets us in our brokenness. And I, I don't want this to sound glib or insensitive, but reflecting on my own life, I wonder perhaps sometimes healing looks like knowing you are loved and forgiven and incredibly precious and that you are actually full of faith, even like the man in the story when you are still laid on a mat, paralyzed. We're going to have a time of response now, so if the band uh, wants to come up, that would be good. And we're going to be taking communion in a few moments. And, and if you're new with us, uh, the details of, of how we do that uh, are on the front page of your flyer. But I want to stress that everybody, absolutely everybody, is welcome to participate. We recognize that we're all at different stages in our journey, but we're all fractured. We're all unhealthy in some ways. Uh, we're all in need of healing in some form. And taking broken bread and spilt wine, or in our case, a gluten-free cracker and juice, is a way of symbolizing that brokenness and that need for healing, that need for grace. And lighting a candle uh, that can so easily be snuffed out is another way of representing that. But before we do those things and before we respond in other ways, Let's take a few moments now uh, to be still in God's presence. Maybe we can uh, put the lights down a little bit. I'd encourage you to just to take some time, uh, quieten your thoughts. You might want to close your eyes and sit and soak in the good news that we are loved and accepted right now, just as we are.
Let's choose to really believe that, to allow that truth to sink deep down inside us, to permeate us. We might also be aware of areas of our life where we long for healing or liberation, where we feel weighed down and oppressed, or aspects of our life that feel out of control. We might be longing for Jesus's healing touch to cleanse us, to restore us, to lift us up, set us back on our feet. This is a time to open our hearts to God's presence and allow God to meet us in the silence, wherever we are. I'm going to take a few moments and then I'll close this in prayer. God, we thank you for your incredible love for us that embraces us, that holds us. Whatever we feel about ourselves or our situations, you love us. You accept us. You forgive us. Pray that we might really know that in our deepest core. You know what brokenness, what hurts, what fractures we bring to you and cry out if you are willing, heal us. We know that you long for our wholeness. And I just pray that uh, whatever, whatever the outcomes, we would trust you to be with us at work in us, using us and loving us through all of our situations. Amen. When you're ready, please come and take communion.